We hope everybody enjoyed episode 60 with former SBS member Cy Jeffries. Now, here is a snippet of what to expect today. I think one of the big things you've got to do is if you make a mistake, you've just got to get on with it. Um, it it's interesting that in the, in the world of punditry, in a game, I could say probably anywhere between three and 5,000 words. But if you say three words wrong, people will only focus on the three, three bad things and they cannot wait to pick you up, uh, pull you up on it. But you've got to forget that and go, well, we all do that in a conversation anyway. We have a normal conversation throughout the day. We'll all say something wrong or get our words mixed up ever so slightly. You go, oh, what was I thinking there? We're excited to welcome Stephen Warnock onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Stephen is a former Premier League and England international footballer who represented numerous clubs, including Liverpool, Aston Villa, Blackburn, Leeds and more. Steve is now a television and radio pundit for several high-profile channels. We spoke to him about his playing career, including three horrendous injuries prior to making a first-team appearance, his current role as a pundit and his plans for the future. Enjoy. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the Golders Podcast. Cheers for having me. Yeah, well, it's lovely for you to be with us today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Let's, uh, Let's see where it goes. So, Steve, to us, gold dust is about sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does gold dust mean to you? Um, I think it's sometimes it depends. It depends what, what industry you're in and things like that. But I think it's passing on knowledge, um, passing on bits of information that you have held yourself that you think are, are vitally important or have helped you along the way somewhere. Um, to, to get to where you want to be or the journey that you're on. And those little bits that you can pass on to help other people, I think for me, they're the bits of gold dust that, that mean everything to you and, and hopefully mean, mean something to others as well. So, Steve, share with us what your formative years in football looked like. Um, enjoyable, uh, tough at times. Um, I think starting out as a kid, I think it's it's everyone's dream to 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 be a footballer, um, and and I was one of the fortunate ones to to be able to live the dream. But um, I went to the academy at Liverpool and was fortunate enough to be part of uh, a special academy at Liverpool, and then um, had a few injury injuries along the way. But I I just Every opportunity I got to play football, I played football. Um, I played for my school, I played for my local team, I played for the team that was a year above me. I played Saturday, Sunday. Um, I was just addicted to it and I used to annoy the hell out of my brother because my brother's like four years older than me. And every night it'd just be like, can we go outside and play footy? Um, just playing between the goalposts and or the, the driveway posts in the in the in the drum in the road and we'd just play three and in play games and you'd get like loads of the kids playing out um but i was just obsessed with with getting better and better as well um and i think it helped me having an older brother be able to to achieve that and and get better well steve in terms of your career you retired at the age of 36 and as long as our Statman is correct here. You played 457 professional games. So, played in the Premier League for Liverpool. In, in, incorrect. Incorrect. Statman's mm. getting fired. He is. Who's your Statman? I can't disclose that. Is that. It? I can't disclose <laughs> <laughs> Guilty. 500, 540. 540. Wow. He's way off. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's miles off. He hasn't been counting other games. Maybe, maybe I've added a few on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the reason I know it is because I uh, I got sent a uh, a commemorative boot from, um, God, I can't even say it, from Umbro with my games on it and when my career started and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was something that was brought up numerous times about how many games I played once I'd retired. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice touch. So, yeah, need a new stat, man. 
Well, re- I'll I'll take over that bit. You played 540 <laughs> professional games. Yeah. And you look, you played in the Premier League, obviously for Liverpool, Blackburn Villa, and then obviously after that, Bolton Leeds, Derby, Bradford, Burton, Albion, Coventry, and Wigan. And you also had the honor of of playing for England, which I think growing up is probably every kid's dream. Yeah. When you reflect on your playing career, what life skills did professional football teach you? Um, well, it's probably good and bad uh, life skills because I think when, you, when you're in the game, you're told where to be, what time to be there, what to eat, um, what to dress like. And it's almost like a, a military operation and it becomes very regimented in, in the way that you are. But then it comes detrimental when you finish because you crave it and you miss it and you don't have it. Um, there's there's no one at the end of your career saying, um, congratulations on your career, but this is what you need to do moving forward now. This is the options that, or these are the problems that you might uh, overcome in your life and things like that. And I found it very difficult because I went into the media world, but suddenly I'd gone from being in at a certain time in training every day um, being told where to be to suddenly not knowing what to do with my day and how to fill a day and what to do. And it was, it was quite lonely. Uh, people think it's great. Oh, you'd be retired at 36. And you go, yeah, but I don't want to be retired. I want something to fill my time. Um, so in a way, I'm never late. Um, a very, uh, If I am, I'm very, very rarely re- uh, late because I was always taught that it was disrespectful to the coaches, disrespectful to your teammates and things like that. So they're things that have stuck with me. So they're the good side of things. Um, the respect you have for people, uh, the when you grow up and uh, when, you mature, when you mature a bit more. But even working in team environments and learning to understand what people need and what certain different characters of people are, if you like, um, learning those skills as well is vitally important. But yeah, there's there's pros and cons to, to being a footballer when you uh, when you retire. The personal disciplines and obviously have helped you considerably, Steve. Uh, but it'd be equally important to share that you've had a you had a first year of injury setbacks as well. Uh, can you share with us what some of those setbacks were? Um, well, when I when I first came out of school and uh, went full time with the the academy at Liverpool, I was playing in an under seventeen game, um, which was the first game of the season away at Tottenham, and I I, uh, I suffered a broken leg and it took me about nine nine months or so to get back. And in all, in all honesty, when I broke my leg, I didn't really think much of it. I just thought, oh, it's nine months out. I'll just get back and I'll play again when I'm back. But then when you realise how hard it is to get back and all the the work it takes to get yourself fit mentally, physically. Um, you're seeing the lads out on the training pitch every day. You see lads who are progressing and sort of making a name for themselves. You get envious and you get jealous and you think that could have been me. And um, when I came back from my injury, I um, I played three games and then I broke my leg again and suffered the same problem. But then I started to have a little bit of a, an issue with it People were talking around me, oh, you're injury prone, you've got brittle bones, you've got problems and things like that. So they all started playing on my mind, to be honest with you. Um, I had a little bit of a, uh, a tough time with it all and turned to, turned to drink a little bit and tried to suppress it all and, and deal with it in a different way. Um, and then found myself out of that, got myself back fit again and thought, right, now I can have a good go at it. I was backed by the club who were, were brilliant. They offered me a professional contract. So I felt like I owed a lot to the club and then came back, played for about three or four months and then broke my leg again. And um, you just sort of think, well, where's this going to end up? How's this going to sort of, how's this going to go? Do I continue playing or do you just give up? And I just thought, do you know what? There's, there's worse things to be doing than trying to get yourself fit to earn yourself a career somewhere. Um, and I just persevered with it and had the right people in and around me at the football club, uh, friends, family and things like that. And I think when you come back after those injuries and you and you have the career that I had, 
playing 540 odd games, then you go, yeah, well done. Um, it takes a, a little bit of reflecting later on um, where you go, you've, you've done really well to, to recover from that and get yourself back fit. Well, they're not, they're not small injuries. So three broken legs. It's not like you've rolled your ankle or anything like that. These are just one broken leg can completely derail a player's career. So you've had three of them. And at a point, maybe there's there's kind of maybe thoughts going through your mind of, is this for me or is it is it going to work? Why me, et cetera. But you obviously yeah. did persevere. Where did, your, where did your mental robustness come from? Not a clue. I think it's just something that's in you. Um, I think it's just something that is is there where, again, like I say, you get envious and you get jealous of people and it's how you use that and how you, you channel that. And I think that was the big thing for me was make sure that it was used in a positive way. The one thing that I always thought, which might sound really strange, but I always thought it's only a bone. Whereas if I did my cruciate or did something like that, there was so much more complication around it. So there was more ligaments that could have been damaged. It was how would they repair? Whereas I always just thought a bone will repair. It'll be quite easy just to wait that nine months. And once you know that that's recovered, all my ligaments are there. All my, my muscles are there. So they're strong. So that was something that I always had in my mind was that was that was my mindset. If you're like, well, it's only a bone. And I think when I was coming, when I got injured, um, there was a couple of players who got injured with me who did ACLs. And they were, they were nowhere near the level I was when I was coming back. And that gave me more belief that it is probably the best injury to have. And that sounds crazy when you think like broken leg in football. But that was the way I had to look at it. So um, I tried to take the positives from it. And that was the only thing I could do, really. Um, but the mindset part of it, listen, it's, it's not as easy as you think. It, it's very difficult because um, you, you come out to a training pitch and you train every day, you're out in the sunshine or you're out in the rain, but you've got a party of people around you and there's a collective to get togetherness and there's a camaraderie. Whereas it was me and a physio and we were in four walls uh, doing the same thing day in, day out. And that is Groundhog Day. And that's where it's very difficult. And that's why I said on the second time, I had a breakdown and I just like, I just went off the rails because I was just thinking, I can't go through this again. And, um, I sat down with the club and they sort of switched me between the academy and the first team going in with their physios just for a change of scenery. Um, they gave me more time off as I was doing it, um, more breaks because they knew how difficult it was mentally to go through that battle. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was very tough, but I think it's the answer to your question is it's just something within you that you you channel in the right way. I didn't know this till about a month ago when we were, we were talking that you initially weren't a left back. So you played as a left back, but starting off, you were a, a pacey winger. Yeah. Was that because of the injuries? And if so, how did you then have to adjust and adapt your game based on what had happened? Yeah. So, so growing up, when I, when I played for Liverpool as a youngster, I played... Uh, up until the age of, well, I played for England schoolboys as a, as a left winger and a right winger. Um, I was, I was rapid, I was really quick and um, that was one of my biggest attributes. And then when I, when I broke my leg for the first time, I broke it, well, I broke, broke my leg the two times um, playing as a winger. So the first one was playing left wing and I was watching a ball come over my shoulder and as I planted my foot, the goalkeeper went through my leg. And the second one was taking someone on um, planting my right foot and getting it kicked through again and then the third time was I, I played centre mid as well I'd, I'd grown up being sort of across the midfield if you like and the third time was a, being a midfielder and I got topped and then we went to play uh, Wimbledon away in um, it was like a mini tournament and Wimbledon was the first game and Steve Highway just pulled me before the game and he said you're going to play centre back and I was like why and he was like because I don't want confrontate I don't want you going in for tackles I want you to be able to read the game and understand the game and be able to step into tackles and come onto the game and not have people in and around you um so I was like okay no problem and then 
when I got back fit, I was playing centre midfield. And that's when I went on loan to Bradford and played, I think it was 14 or 15 games at Bradford and then picked up a, a slight hamstring injury, which wasn't uncommon after being out for so long. And then I went to Coventry and I went as a, as a centre midfielder or a left midfielder um, initially and joined them. But when I was at Bradford, I played a few games at left back and then Coventry, I started the season as a left back, um, played a, a majority of my games there, but also played left mid, centre mid, centre back. So I almost became a utility player, went back to Liverpool and I was seen as a left midfielder. And there was myself, Jimmy Trio, um, Harry Kuehl and John Arnorisa sort of vying for that place. And then, I don't know if you, yeah, you'll remember it, because the infamous night of Jimmy Traore's own goal uh, away at Burnley in the FA Cup where he cruyffed it into his own goal. I was playing left midfield in that game and Jimmy Traore was playing left back. Um, Rafa took Jimmy Traore off and said, right, you're going to play left back. And that's where my career in the Premier League started as a left-back. I made my debut for Liverpool, both in the Champions League and the Premier League, as a left midfielder, as a winger, um, and then played that game against Burnley. And then onwards, that was me as a left-back. Um, I did, when I went to Blackburn, played midfield. I played centre midfield for Aston Villa as well, because people knew I'd played that. Um, but yeah, grew up as a winger. You mentioned a name there that's very, very well-renowned in terms of development, Steve Highway. What kind of influence did he have on you? Uh, a huge one, not only from a, a playing point of view, but from being, being a good person as well. Um, understood different backgrounds, understood troubles in, in houses as well and, and, gr and growing up as, as kids. He saw everything, um, but he took everyone individually and, and dealt with everyone individually, never treated people the same. Um, and it was just, it's, it's one of his biggest attributes as a, as a person. And anyone who's worked under him and who might not have, appreciated him at the time but look back on him now will understand what he was trying to do and what he was trying to achieve for that person um, he was someone who never gave up on me um, never stopped believing in me as a, as a player as well worked relentlessly um, in the evenings when I was a, a schoolboy there was him and Dave Shannon who used to stay behind and, and try and help me um, recover my confidence and things like that but he was always on the other end of the phone if I ever needed a chat um, he, he knew he knew me inside out um, probably knew me better than anyone probably knew me better than I knew myself um, knew how to fire me up when I needed firing up he knew how to calm me down when I was when I was hot um, yeah he's he, he's a massive influence on my not only my my career as a footballer but even uh, now um, because he, he gave me advice along the way where um it was just so important. And one of those pieces of advice was when I was at Liverpool and I was potentially going to Blackburn, I, I rang him. I said, what do I do? And he said, you're a footballer. He said, do you want to turn around after your career and play, say you've played 500 career games or do you want to say you've played 150 bit park games for Liverpool? He went, go out and enjoy your career and be a footballer because that's what you dreamed of being. You dreamed of playing week in, week out in the Premier League or the Championship, whatever it might be. But go and enjoy that challenge and go and go and make the most of it. And um, that's what I did. I went off the back of his 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 recommendation. That's one of the reasons I left Liverpool was because of Steve. And um, for him, that was a, a big thing to see me play in the Premier League and, and go on to play for England. That's that's what they dream of as as coaches, as um, to, tr to try and help you achieve that goal. So I'll, I'll be forever indebted to him for, for his advice and for for all the help that he's given me along the way. Well, he still influences the academy as we as we speak, as you already yeah. were. Uh, his, his knowledge and his ability to be able to communicate messages in such a way which has impact. He actually features in our book, and he has a quote which really aligns to what you shared there, Steve, in terms of getting to know you as a person and helping you individually. Because they're not 
he's not you're not the only one there are other people that i have spoken to and you'll know personally that steve has influenced yeah. and he, he shared something about you know if you get 20 people who are wanting to learn the guitar all being taught by the same tutor every one of those people who are learning to play the guitar all play differently yeah. And he looks at that differently, teaches differently, coaches differently, but he's a very, very bright, bright individual as well. And mm. it's lovely that you share your thoughts about someone who is obviously a legend at the club, which I'm sure uh, many, many uh, can tell wonderful stories yeah. about him uh, on their path and their journey in, in as a player. Uh, now, look, listen, moving on slightly, just changing tact. You know, we've got your, we've actually put more, if you'd have been fit, you'd have probably played over five, 600 games, by the way, see. So perhaps the uh, stats man might be correct. <laughs> Sound like you're the stat man there, trying to dig yourself no. out of a hole. Well, yeah, guilty. <laughs> I'm guilty. I'm trying to justify if you hadn't been fit, I got you over 600 games. Uh, yeah. So listen, you're now a professional pundit and commentator working for LFC. BBC Sport, Sky Sports News, Premier League TV, and BBC Radio 5 Live. Some small shows in there. Uh, when did your interest in punditry begin? Um, well, when I, was a, when I was still playing, around about the age of 30, um, I, was, I was Aston Villa, actually, and um, LFC TV were doing, um, it was a youth cup game. And it was Liverpool versus Aston Villa in the in the Youth Cup, but it was at Villa Park. So they just said, would you be able to do a co-commentary on it? And I was like, yeah, why not? I live in the area, it's easy enough. And I did a co-commentary and really liked it, really enjoyed it, but didn't really think I was any good at it. I just enjoyed it, didn't get any feedback. Um, but they just kept on asking me to do bits and pieces here, here and there. So... From the age of like 30 to 35, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of work for LFC TV, but um, not really thought too much about it. And then I was at Bradford at the end of my career and I got asked to do Five Live. I did a, did a radio show on the Tuesday night. So I went and did that and they said, oh, we really liked you. Would you like to come back in on Thursday? We've got another show that you think you're great for. So I was like, OK, yeah, no problem. So went back in, did that. And then they said, oh, we've got a, a match of the day two extra show on Sunday, which was an old TV show, but it was like a radio show on TV. Just sat around having discussions. So um, I asked Simon Grayson for um, for the morning off because we were meant to be in training. I just said, it's an opportunity that I don't want to pass up. And he was like, absolutely. I totally agree. I understand. So I went in, did that. And then I just started getting offers off the back of it. People saying like, oh, we'd like you to come on this and would you be interested? Um, so I'd, I kept on doing more and more work. And then I got a phone call one day uh, in April. Uh, this was around about February when I'd started doing this, the radio show and the TV bit. And I got a phone call in the April uh, from the guy who'd been booking me, Garth. And he just said, what's your plans? End of the season, are you going to carry on playing or do you know what you're thinking? And uh, I just sort of how come, what are you thinking? And he just said, well, we really like you here at the BBC and we feel like we've got loads of work for you. So if you were to retire, um, we'd love to have you on board. And I just went, I've ret I'll retire then. Literally didn't even give it a second thought. I just went, I'll retire. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'll retire. Because in my mind, I, I don't, I'd half thought about it, but I just thought I need that offer to do it. Whereas if I hadn't have had an offer, I'd have probably just played out another year, maybe got through another year. But I just thought that opportunity to carry on and not let someone else take that opportunity uh, was too good an opportunity to turn down. And um, yeah, I, I've been obviously fortunate enough to get the, the phone calls and things like that, but I work hard at what I do. And hopefully that sort of, uh, that, that show, that's shown when I'm on TV or when I'm on the radio, that that I put a lot of effort into what I do. What is it about the punditry that intrigues you? I mean, to to retire just like that. I mean, obviously you you said you needed 
an opportunity or an offer to then force you to retire or to make give you that decision to. But what was it that went, yep, yeah, punditry, I'm enjoying it, this is what I want to do? Well, I go back to Steve Highway before and I'll tell you a quick story about him where he said him and Alan Hansen were retired and they offered them both chief scout roles at Liverpool. So they went to this game one day. I think it was away. At, I think it was Tranmere they went to. So they both sat in the stands and Steve's talking to him about this player, that player. And Alan Hansen just goes, this isn't for me. He went, I'm going home. And Steve was like, what? He went, I'm not sitting here watching this. He said, ah, this, isn't, this isn't me. I need to do something else. And Steve said, Alan Hansen would be probably one of the last people you would have thought would have gone into punditry. But he said, you don't know until you try. So you've got to try coaching. You've got to try the punditry. And you've got to try management, if you like. Or you find something completely different. And I just sort of, I always remember that conversation. And I remember when I was going in doing the work, doing the punditry, I got a buzz from doing it. And I also felt, not big-headedly, but I always thought I'm quite good at it. I'm able to get my points across quite well. I'm able to break the, the game down, which I didn't think other people could in a way. And I just thought, um, well, the feedback as well that I was getting was positive. I'm thinking, well, these are the BBC and Sky Sports and things like that. And they're all telling me I'm doing a great job and there's, there's huge potential there. Then you think, well, if they're going to believe in me, I've got to believe in myself to do it. So it just felt so right to, to give it up. And um, I do I get excited about it because I think there's the side to me that says there was there was times in, in football where my brain would do things quicker than my body could. And I just couldn't keep up with my brain. Whereas now, when I talk about football, I see things which I probably couldn't do on a pitch, but I can talk about them equally as well. And I think that's something where I look at it and go, ah, oh, okay, that was my skill set. So I know that that's my skill set. So try and utilise it. So when you, you're falling into a, a wonderful niche where it, it links with a skill set, from getting out your car, so you go watching a game live, Steve. You get out your car, you get out your vehicle, you walk into the ground. Take us on a journey of what a typical day, a game day experience looks like for you, and the type of experiences of when you bump into because you're not going to just walk straight into the ground and not see anybody. How does that actually furnish and start to create a foundation for what's to come? Yeah, the thing with for us is, is that the game day starts a few days earlier as well. It's what's the narrative of the game? What's the story behind the game? What's the potential outcome of the game? So where can a team end up? What what's it do to them relegation-wise or promotion-wise, whatever it might be? Um, who's the informed players? What's, this, what's the, the structure behind the team? How do they play? What are the fans feeling about them? You've got to take everything into account as to what you're commentating on. Um, or what you're speaking about. And, and that's the big thing. So my my job now is the greatest job in the world. I get to watch football all the time because I have to study it. I have to study what's going on with teams. So if there's a game on TV, I will watch it and I'll have to watch it, which is which is great. Um, so I've got great excuses to always watch footy. Um, but turning up to a game, um, more often than not, you'll be sort of three hours before the game. So you'll be there quite a while before the crowd get there. But you get in the the, the media room, and I'm talking post and pre-COVID, um, because you, you look at the situation and what happened there. That was that was a horrible time to, to, to commentate in and things like that. Um, but now when you're in the media room, the buzz, the excitement uh, in and around the game, that's getting commentated on. You will all sit around talking about the teams, who's in form, who's not, why you think they're not, why you think they are. And you're just taking little bits from different people, but not trying to give away too much of what you're thinking as well, because you don't want to give the best bits away. So you're trying to be quite cute in what you do. Um, and then discussion with the commentator will probably be either night before or on the way to the game. Um, it'll be a brief sort of what time are you get into the ground and, Whatever, what have you. Um, 
And when I, when I get in the commentary position, I like to write my notes when I get in the commentary position because I, I, I feel like I retain it more. Whereas if I was to do my notes two or three days before, they'll sort of disappear out of my mind. Whereas when, I, when I'm writing them down, I'm, they're, they're fresh and they're storing in there. You'll get different people working in different ways. It suits everyone's completely different as, as we spoke about in coaching. Um, but that's the way I like to do my work. And I often leave the commentator to, uh, to just to leave him to his own devices because I just think the team news that's coming in is fresh. Uh, there might be changes. You're trying to work out tactics of the team. So you'll do that together. You'll try and work out the tactics where people are playing, um, why he's left people on the bench. Um, and then more often than not, I'll just let him get on with it because he's got to write notes for the opening lines coming in. He has to do the team, uh, give the team out before the game and things like that. And then when the game opens up, my job is to, I used to always think it was about stats and people wanted to know who'd scored, how many goals and things like that. And I was working with Ian Dennis, who works on Five Live, and he was like, what are you writing down there? Like, what have you got written on your notepad? I was like, well, stats about everyone. And he, he opened his book and he went, that's my job. He went, you do the job that no one else can do. And I was like, what's that? And he went, take me into the mind of the player, take me into the changing room, take me onto that pitch and tell me why things are happening. He said, I can't do that. And he said, and all the fans and the people on the radio can't do that. He said, so you give me insight as to why things are happening, what tactically could change, what can happen tactically. And he said, and you will become a better pundit. And I started doing it and I just thought, wow, this is completely different. Because I wasn't concentrating on the things, trying to get things out that I'd been researching for hours it was giving insight as to why things were happening on the pitch. And I just, I loved it. it. It opened my eyes completely again, but it was just that one conversation and you just, you see punditry in a completely different way then. Follow on from the previous question, if I may, Steve, you, you, you mentioned about going, going into the mind, because obviously you're a former player, you love, you've got your educated, uh, I guess most of it subjective at best, but certain facts, which, Shots on goal, player stats, all of that type of thing. But when you're at, again coming back to getting out of vehicle and marching towards the ground, are you getting a sense of the atmosphere from the crowd? And, oh, I, and I know yeah. you're three hours. You're three hours before the kickoff, but they're still mulling around, aren't they? Are you picking anything up, or is there anything where you? You go, yeah, listen, that's a nugget. I'll keep hold of that just in the event that I may be able to drop it in. Yeah, Is that you're also a point? Yeah, you're always looking for something like that. But you can sense an atmosphere when you get to a ground. And that's the biggest thing that you've got to try and pick up on. The other thing I look at as well is I always watch the warm-ups of players. Who looks confident? Who looks nervous? I'm constantly looking for, for little things in that. Um, but yeah, you, you, you're... Often what you'll find is, is that when you leave the media room and you're walking through the concourse or you're trying to get up to your position, that's when you'll speak to a few people and you will pick up little bits and they'll tell you why something's so important or why they're not concerned about something. And they're the little, little bits that you, you try and use. But I'm on fans forums all week um, trying to find stuff out, what the fans are thinking, um, how they're feeling about certain things. And, and it's... It's trying to relay that as well, because what you're trying to do is, I'm not trying to be Stephen Warnock, ex-Liverpool, Blackburn, Leeds, and things like that. I'm trying to be Stephen Warnock, impartial pundit. My What I'm trying to get rid of is all them clubs. I want people to respect my opinion because it's a good opinion. Um, I don't want people to look at me and go, you're biased towards a certain team. Because that's one thing I try not to be. I try not to do that. I had um, something with like James Milner, who's a friend of mine, and someone had a pop and said, uh, you can't say that about him, he's your mate. And he spoke to me after it, and he was like, if I'm having a bad game, he went, you tell people I'm having a bad game, that's not on you, that's on me. Um, he said, you can't try and look after me, he said, because you're the one who looks bad at the end of it. Um, and it's true, because I've got mates who are still playing now and I have to call them out on things but 
I'd fully expect it the other way. I wouldn't want someone to protect me if I'm having a bad game. If I'm, if I'm having a bad game, I know I'm having a bad game. Well, Steve, there's this, there's a part of, uh, I guess I'm trying to think of how I word this one. As a player, you have an understanding. So as a player, you understand the game. Yeah. As a pundit, it's a different, it's completely different. And even, even as coaches, it's different. Because when you play, you're in the you're in the moment. You can obviously see things happening as as it goes on. But as a pundit and as a coach, you have to be able to then effectively communicate that to other people. Was there something that helped you become so clear and clear and concise in punditry? Was it something that you just felt got progressively better over time? And the only reason I say this is because we know you, and obviously we've spoke to you, but we watch you and listen to you on the TV and you are very clear and concise. You're able to get your messages across effectively and efficiently and, and do a very good job of it. But that had to have come from somewhere. So I'm just curious as to where that was. I think it's like, like most things is that I study other people. Like no different to footballers who, who watch other footballers growing up and and they try to emulate them and take the best bits of them. Now I listen to other pundits and I try and learn from other pundits. But then there's the other side where you evolve naturally, you get more confident in what you're doing, what you're saying. Um, but that comes with practice, that comes with making mistakes as well. I think one of the big things you've got to do is if you make a mistake, you've just got to get on with it. Um, it it's interesting that in the, in the world of punditry, in a game I could say probably anywhere between three and 5,000 words. But if you say three words wrong, people will only focus on the three, three bad things and they cannot wait to pick you up, uh, pull you up on it. But you've got to forget that and go, well, we all do that in a conversation anyway. We have a normal conversation throughout the day. We'll all say something wrong or get our words mixed up ever so slightly and you go, oh, what was I thinking there? But because it's on TV or it's on the radio, people can't wait to jump on it. But the quicker you can put that out your mind and not let it affect you, the better. Now, that comes with speaking to other pundits. It comes to speaking to commentators. But the one thing I, I looked at when I was doing this was how do I get better was to work with people who know the industry inside out. So I paid for, for training myself. I invested in myself because I thought I need to make sure that I, I progress and the only way I'm going to progress is, is understanding things. So little things like a radio and a TV commentary are completely different. A TV commentary, you can see the picture, you can see what's happening on the pitch. But what, are you, what, what I don't know is, or what I didn't know at times was, when's the replay coming? What replay am I going to get? How many replays am I going to get of a goal? What is the, the next thing that's going to crop up? And these are all little things that are dropping in. But now when I do a commentary, I've got a headset on. I've got my voice. I've got the, the commentator's voice. I've got the director in the studio or in the, in the truck who's doing the, doing the game who's saying, replay's going in in three, two, one, then I'm going into the replay. I know that's my role now, but I've had to learn that and I've had to ask for help on that. Whereas when you do a, a radio game, there's no replay coming in. You've got to remember what's happened in your head. You've got to pick out the players very quickly. But what you don't have to do is you don't have to rush it because there's no replay. You don't have to talk over anything. You don't have to dissect it. You just have to paint a picture. So when you do a radio game, I have to tell you what's happening, but I also have to tell you where it's happening and how it's happened because you've got no idea where it is on the pitch. So I'm trying to create that in your mind and give you something. And that's a skill set in itself. And it's something that I'm still learning, still trying to get better at. But I feel like I have improved on it. Um, but again, it comes from listening to other pundits and listening to the best. Um, the one for me who, who I always listen to is Jim Beglin. Um, Jim's been about for years, had a similar career to myself, um, not a not a household name as such, but play for big teams, being part of big teams. But Jim's sort of career was curtailed early um, and he went into the punditry. But Jim's, Jim's done World Cups, he's done Champions League finals, he does all the big games because he can 
paint a picture. He can talk you through a game. He can give you analysis. He's so skilled at what he does. So I play golf with Jim, just pick his brains. <laughs> I just say, listen, and, and I'm brutally honest with him. I say to him, I, I want your job. I, I want to get to your level where I, I get to that point where I'm the name that people want to go to. And he, he appreciates and, and recognises that because I'm sure at some point Jim wanted someone else's job. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to get there in the next year. I know it's going to take 10, 15 years. But by that point, hopefully, that'll be my time to get that and, and get that opportunity. So that's the goal you've got to set yourself as well when you when you go into this industry. Do you watch yourself back or listen to yourself after you've commentated? Yeah, that's part of the training as well. Um, sometimes it's not nice. Um, it's like a, they used to call them video nasties, didn't they? When you used to do uh, the, the, uh, the sort of the games, the analysis of games in, in club football. And it's, it's tough at times because you think, God, what, what am I going on about there? What am I saying there? But again, the only way you'll learn from it is being harsh on yourself and, and learning and trying to correct it and put it right. Um, I try and do it as, as much as I can. I probably don't do it enough, but sometimes when you workload that much, it's very difficult to try and fit it in um, and correct things. The one thing I try and do is when I, when I go to games, I try and take notes with me because um, what you often realise is, is that, and you'll probably pick up on this now, we call them buzzwords. So it's something that, uh, a word that someone uses all the time. So mine used to be excellent. So whenever someone scored a goal, I had excellent and I had brilliant. It's an excellent ball through and a brilliant finish. Well, that was how I described everything. No matter whether it was a 50-yard a screamer or a 12-yard shot in the goal. It was brilliant. So my vocab has had to change and, and, and alter along the way as well. So I sit there with buzzwords in front of me. So depending on the quality of goal, I'll get certain words that I'll use. And they're just little reminders that are there for you in front of you because you do need reminders because sometimes when you're in that heat of the moment and you're, your adrenaline's pumping as well because it does when, you, when you're in the commentary, um, you've got to get that side of things right where you you make sure that you're you're not on repeat all the time. You mentioned about Jim Beglin being outstanding. Play golf with him just to uh, I get. Do you like him? Oh, <laughs> I like I like him going? a lot. <laughs> uh, the thing is, is I really like Jim. Um, I think he's great company. But that's where listen. I don't I don't walk around the old eighteen holes asking him for for advice all the time, but. <laughs> Uh, he, he has been someone who, who I've turned to um, when I've had decisions to make about jobs or things like that. But I think Jim enjoys it as well. I think he likes the fact that I'm, I'm hungry to succeed and things like that because um, and he, he's such a, a generous guy because he'll, he'll always give you his time on the phone or whether you want to go and have a coffee with him and have a sit down because something's happened. Um, but even now, Jim has moments where he's had tough times and even when you send them a message to say, listen, I heard what happened at the weekend. Um, I'm sorry that you're getting a, a little bit of, of a rough ride over it. They mean a lot to each other because in the punditry world, it is a lonely world and you've got to sort of rally around a bit and look after each other because it's it can be quite cutthroat, as I say, with, with social media. Um, and people want to put you down straight away. And like I said earlier on, you you get to that point where people jump on the one negative and can't wait to, to see people, to see people fail if you like. So, uh, but no, I think Jim's just a, an absolute diamond of a guy. I, I love his company as well. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I might, I might go for one hole of asking him questions about punditry. So in your opinion, and if you had to write a checklist of what the difference are, differences are between a good, and a great pundit, what would be on your list? Um, if, if you're talking about a pundit for um, for, a, for a commentary game, the, the biggest skill is not to talk for too long. So we have a like a, a, a period, if I'm going to talk, I can talk for no longer than 15 to 20 seconds, if that's a TV game. 
If it's radio, it's completely different because people can't see it. They don't know what's what they're looking at. So you can you can get a little bit more into it in in uh, in radio. Radio is more like having a discussion in a pub or on your in your in your living room with with friends. Whereas a TV one is a little bit different. So you've got to know the time that you're on for. But the one thing I want to I want to get from a pundit is. I don't want them to complicate complicate the game. I want them to tell me something that's happening on the pitch and why it's happening and what the opposition can do to correct it or see, tell me why a player is so good at something and what makes him great at it. And I think they're the biggest skills. But even when you do punditry for um, analysis on a show, it's tell me how things happen and what, what, what the naked eye is not seeing. Educate me about football because I'm not being sort of arrogant in, in any way, but coaches who have coached at a good level, um, players that have played at a, a good standard, they see the game differently to supporters who go to a game. They, they, they often wonder why things are happening and why what they're trying to do. So when, when Pep Guardiola came over, and he started playing this passing game around the back. And people were like, what's he trying to achieve here? He's trying to draw people out of positions. And he's trying to create space further up the pitch. And people couldn't get their heads around it. They didn't understand it at all. Now they do because people are educating them on it. So the more you can educate um, the, 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 the public and the viewing people into analysis as to why things are happening, then I think you're doing the job. I love it when I do a show on a Monday morning and I break down why something's happened and I'll get messages on social media saying that was so insightful. I didn't even realize that's why that was happening. And I love it. I get a buzz from that because I'm, I'm made up because I've taught someone something. And I think that's where my buzz comes from for things like that. Um, but I, I just think be likable, be likable as a pundit as well, but be honest. I think if you've got an opinion on something, go with it because I think it's a word that is often used uh, a lot at the moment in football is it's subjective and that is what people's opinions are. Rusty, you've mentioned you watch a lot of games. Best job in the world, you get paid to watch games. So the amount of Premier League games you watch will be as much as, if not more than anybody. With that being said, out of all the current Premier League players... Which one do you admire the most? Um, it's it's a very difficult question because I, I admire ones in in different ways. Defensively, from uh, from a point of making the game look so easy, I, I think you you struggle to look past Van Dyke, and that's not me with a Liverpool hat on. That's me with a footballing hat on and saying incredible. Um, I think goalkeeper wise, I think it's. I love watching Edison play. I think Edison's the best footballing goalkeeper in the Premier League. I think Allison's the best shot-stopping keeper in the Premier League. But again, toss of a coin between them two. Move it into midfield. I don't think you can go very far beyond uh, De Bruyne. I just think he's a joy to watch. I just think the way he plays the game, the way he can speed it up, the way he can slow it down. However, I have enjoyed watching... Um, I've enjoyed watching a few people this year in midfield. Loved watching Kovacic at Chelsea. I think he's grown into an incredible player. He's shown a side of the game that I didn't know he had, which was the aggression side of it, um, how he, how tenacious he is, but how clever he is as a footballer as well. But then I love watching Thiago, another one who makes the game just look effortless. And you just think, how? How do you make it look so easy? Um, and then I look at centre-forwards and I just think, the, the ability of of Salah and his his drive and his determination, his hunger is just unbelievable. Um, but I, I get more of a buzz off not watching individuals. I get a buzz off watching team shape and, and as a collective, I, I find it more fascinating how players will sacrifice things on a pitch to make sure that it's to the to the uh, to the sort of it's not detrimental to the team it just has a, a big impact on the team it helps improve the team in a game um, and I love seeing improvements and things like that When you mention about 
teamship, Steve, you, the organic nature of the game, either when you when you're actually watching games, easier to watch team shape when they're defending as opposed to when they're going forward. And we know the likes of Liverpool, City, there is a brand, there's an identity which is very evident. You know, they, yeah. Liverpool, you're getting the fullbacks forward and then would you say that's one of the greatest skill sets that you've got? So you've just spoken of players there. You've obviously got a lovely library, a lovely history of understanding and remembering names and players. But would that be your greatest skill set in how teams are playing as opposed to, yeah. you know, because they, they might change during the season. We've got Leeds United now, where unfortunately... Or fortunately, depending on where you sit with it, Bielsa had a style, he had a brand of football where they are I press, I work, man to man type stuff, but yet it's going to change now. Mm. Do you I'm see... fascinated to watch it. Yeah. What is it? I can't, what... I can't wait to watch it. But I've already done stuff on it, Keith, where um, so on the show on the Monday, we've already looked at. Uh, Jesse Marsh and and how his team lined up for for Leipzig and for Salzburg, and it's it's an understanding of how much more organised they could be under this manager. Um, this is one of the the fascinating parts about the job as well is is listening to fans and listening to them talk about their club and Leeds are they're so loyal to Bielsa and the way what he's done at the club, but they're almost drowned by that because they don't want to see past it. They don't want to see someone else come in and do a great job because he's the, he's the guy who got them out of the championship into the Premier League. And they almost think, well, that, that's his way. That was his style. We'd rather go down seeing that. And I just think, so naive. Like you, You've got to get to a point where, and I might be speaking out of term and people might pull me up on it, whatever. But I look at Bielsa and I think, his shelf life at a club's 18 months on average, maybe a bit less. Because if you go up against a man-to-man system, it becomes very easy to play against. You'll always find gaps in a man-to-man system. But when he comes in, it's a fresh idea and it's exciting. There's, there's no two ways about it. It is, it is unbelievable to watch. But I'd love to play it against every week because I'd love to fancy myself against my man. Especially you, you think of Liverpool City and people like that. They thrive off that, go man-to-man against them teams. But now I look at Jesse Marsh and I go, this guy's tactically very clever, very, very astute in the way he sets his teams up, presses extremely well, but he presses from a shape. So they're going to be so much more organised now. And that is going to be key to Leeds, staying within the league. Now everyone says as well, well, we're just going to sit behind the ball. You haven't seen his team play. They don't sit behind the ball. They're attack-minded. They're unbelievably free when they attack. But what they are is unbelievably organised in a press, which is what Leeds have never been under Bielsa. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this is going to play out. I'm excited to see how he does. Um, I think he's been extremely uh, well presented in the press. I think he speaks extremely well in what he's done. But yeah, that the skill set of trying to break things down on a football pitch and seeing why things happen, it's, it fascinates me because I think I get so annoyed with with other pundits and with people who say, you've just got to run harder than the other team. It's got to be about desire. They wanted it more. It's not. Football's a game of tactics. It's the biggest skill in a manager's armoury is how he sets his team up. Now, don't get me wrong. This, the manager's job's probably changed a bit where he's got to manage different... Um, like. Uh, different sort of personalities and things like that, Dif- people from all different walks of life. So he becomes a bit of a, um, a social carer, you like, where he's, he's well, not a social carer, but he's, he's sort of a, a psychologist, sorry, where he's looking after people and understanding what they need and what they get out of the game to, to make them tick. But the tactical side of the game, you're telling me Guardiola and Klopp aren't the best tacticians in the world and Tuchel, and that's why they're not the best managers. 100% they are. That's why they're absolute geniuses on the football pitch. And everyone says about Pep Guardiola, about his checkbook. Okay, he's got a great checkbook, but you've got to be able to put them on a pitch and make them play. 
because we've seen other teams in the past. Well, Manchester United. You've got to be able to buy the right players to fit the right system and to make them tick. They don't tick because they haven't got the right manager. They haven't got the right system. They're getting it a little bit better under Ranić, but under Solskjaer, tactically, nowhere near it. Not good enough. And this is the difference in, in great managers. So I love seeing this. I think it's brilliant. You've got a big smile there, Keith. You obviously agree. <laughs> uh, I just love your... I like the opinion because it's pretty forthright, but there's a difference, you see, because you can share an opinion but actually not be able to, not be able to support it. There's not a lot yeah. of depth behind the response because there's insufficient evidence or data or analysis. Yeah. So, and then the understanding of the game as well, obviously, does help. Now, listen, it would be a remiss of us not to ask you this, because if you had to pick a current All-Star EPL team, who would be in your starting lineup? That's the first question. And the yeah. second question would be, you've already mentioned a couple of managers in there, who would manage it? And you can't pick hmm. all Liverpool players. I you wasn't going to. Steve, you can do whatever you like. Um, on current form and the way people are playing um, personally I'd go I'd go Alisson in goal I I just think he's he's unbelievable Um, so Alisson goes in goal at right back I go for for Trent uh, for the attacking threat that he brings centre halves I go Van Dijk and then the other one was really tough to choose from because I look at Diaz and uh, at Man City and I say, phenomenal player. But then I look at Thiago Silva and I look at Thiago Silva and I just think, what a player. 37 years old, doing what he does in the Premier League is just sensational, uh, the ability that he's got. Um, so I'm going to go with Thiago Silva. Left back, everyone will go Robertson. But I had to fit this guy in just because of how good he's been, is Cancelo. And I didn't want to put him in at right back because of Trent's ability. But I look at Cancelo and I just think the guy is what he what he creates from both fullback positions is it, it's like having another midfielder the way he plays. I, I just think he's phenomenal in the way that he is. Um holding midfielder, I think best in the league arguably best in Europe is, is Fabinho. I'd definitely put him in that position. Um, then I go with um, De Bruyne. I think De Bruyne fits into any team in the Premier League um, comfortably. The The other midfielder was the, the tough one to pick um, because there's so many great midfielders. Um, but it might surprise you a little bit, but I go Gundogan. Uh, Gundogan. I think what he brings to a team um, without being outstandingly pleasing on the eye, as in he's not got this ability to to pick killer passes, but he's almost like a he's like a modern day Frank Lampard, where he arrives at, at the perfect time in the box. He understands when to make runs. He understands how to pull players out of position. And I just think he's he's so good at what he does. Um Centre forwards, right, right, right of the three. I'm going uh, Mohamed Salah, arguably again one of the best players in, in world football at what he does. And the two other forward positions are so tough because I said on current form, but I just don't think you could turn him down. Is Harry Kane? Um, and I look at Harry Kane, and there's times where he frustrates the life out of me. But there's times where I go, wow, unplayable. Uh, vision is, is, is finishing to create things out of nowhere, I think is, is quite remarkable. And then the left-hand side, on form, and he's only just come to the Premier League, I look at Diaz and I say, what is he capable of? Where can he get to? Um but I'm going on form for the season and I'm going to go Sterling because of his ability to score goals, what he's done this season after the Euros as well. Um, I think being quite remarkable to think that he was possibly on his way out of Manchester City as well. 
where there was potential moving on. I think for what he's done to get himself fit and back in the team um, shows incredible mindset as, as to what he is. The one player I was meant to mention as well, who probably would have made it into the midfield, is Declan Rice. I'm a huge fan of his. I think after the Euros he's had, I think he's he's going to be some player. He's he's the closest thing I've seen to Steven Gerrard. Uh, the way he carries the ball, the way he breaks things up. I think the, the next part of his game is goals. And once he starts getting on that road where he's he's picking up goals and assists, I think he'll be I think he'll be a, a, a superstar. I really do. And a manager, toss of a coin between. Well, I say toss of a coin. I'd love to play for for Tuchel. I'd love to to see what what's on his in his head. I think he comes across superbly well in the press. I think his his tactics since he's come into Chelsea have been incredible. I think the way he's handled the squad, he's galvanised them. He's got a real togetherness there. I think it'll be interesting to see how things play out now with with the situation at Chelsea and and how he manages that. But I think what he's done over the past few days has been has been superb. But it has to come to Klopp and Guardiola. And I literally go for Klopp because of the enthusiasm and the character of the man. I think I think Pep had become too much for me um, after a couple of years, too intense. Whereas I've met Jürgen, I understand him and know what he's about as a person. I think he's a, a great character. I think you can have that. There's a different side to him where he can shut away from football. Whereas I don't see that with Pep. I think he's 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 football and he's all in on football and that's it. Whereas I think even the best of us need to be able to step back at times and 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 enjoy a different side of things. Some lineup there. Think, have I missed anyone out that you think should be in? Uh, I'm gonna I would go look, I think we'd be able to play against anybody, wouldn't we, in that side? Is Toss McCarney got fallen and you think up and coming, where would he be? Maybe on the subs bench. I'd certainly have him, certainly be in around the oh, four, wouldn't he? He's brilliant, brilliant player. Yeah, yeah. And we've, I think there's a, there's, there's a few English, but you mentioned Declan Rice. I think you've got him and straight away, it then took me to England and you look at that and go, you have the likes of Bellingham and Rice together moving forward in, in the next few years and, and the amount Scary. of players that are, uh, that are in and around there. But, Steve, look, uh, from our <coughs> side, um, well, first and foremost, I thought, I thought I had the best job in the world, coaching. <laughs> and, and, then, and then coming yeah. out here and interviewing people and I'm sat here going, I might need to, I might need to revisit this one. <laughs> if you need, a, if you need yeah. an assistant pundit, just... Uh. Just give me a bell. You're going to have to get in the queue. Everyone says that. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves my job. Yeah. It, it's funny because I was um, I was into the BBC last weekend with Dion Dublin and um, someone said something to him and he, he just turned around to me and he just started laughing. He went, he said, it's, it's crazy this. He said, we get paid to do this. He went, we've got the best job ever, haven't we? And it does sometimes you just sit back and you go, very, very lucky. But don't get me wrong, I think the guys, you guys who, who are in coaching, I think like the love you have for that is just as equal as my love for punditry. It's it's finding your passion and, and rolling with it, isn't it, as much as you can and enjoy it. There's going to be difficult times along the way, whichever way you look at it, but the uh, the, the better times far outweigh the uh, the negatives. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think with that being said, obviously from our side, we want to... We want to thank you for coming on today. It's been absolutely top draw. Obviously, we know you, so we we listen in and we follow up to what's going on. But hopefully, hopefully, one day over the next few years, it might be World Cup final. England are playing. Stephen Warnock's the dream. Funded. That could be yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that, that's the big thing. I mean, that's it, it's funny because they're my aims. Um, I've been fortunate enough to to commentate on World Cups already. Um, where I've done like a couple of off-tube things. But my goal now is to, to try and get to a World Cup and be a commentator at a World Cup. Um, it's to get the big games. I do Champions League games. I, I've done the Copa Libertadores final. Um, I've done the World Club Cup final. And I'm only four years into my reign as a, as a pundit. So I look at that and go, 
you've got the foundations to, to be able to achieve that. So fingers crossed in, in the next sort of five to 10 years or maybe a little bit longer, that is the, the ultimate goal. And whether I achieve that or not, I don't know, but I, I won't give up trying. Well, we wish you the best with it and um, keep up the great work. And thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.